Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm concerned about the, the empty shelves behind you, Dan. Yeah, well, this is a hotel room. Oh, 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 okay. Well, then I'm less concerned. Wait, no, I'm sure. bring all of his stuff to his hotel room. All right. But, uh, yeah. Why okay. does a hotel room have shelves? Like, well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a place called the Phillips Club in New York. It's like an apartment. Oh, okay. You can put your tchotchkes up there. Yeah. Right. I wish I had some cool movie posters like you guys do, but, you know. Just, okay. just, just the one. <laughs> Oh, nice. He's, 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 he's changed that out recently. He used to have oh. No, no, yeah, I moved, I heard, I moved I the room. Your, was it sweet smell of success you had at one point? I heard something. Yeah, they were in another room. I was in another room. I had smaller posters behind me, yeah, but we just okay. moved the office into a different room in this gigantic, what is this, 12 sheet? I have no idea. Is that a it looks like a six sheet. Six sheet. Um, yeah, I just got this house that had this giant wall, and I was like, what else could you put here? And, and uh, then actually a creator of a show that you worked on uh, dragged me off to a movie memorabilia show. Uh, Alan Spencer took me to this thing. And, oh, my um, God. Alan Spencer. No, no, Sledgehammer. That was like my second job ever. Yeah, that He's was one, of our, uh, one of our uh, gurus on the yes. website. You're kidding. But yeah, we, he took me to this thing. Was it the Beverly Garland? I think it was one of yeah. those. Back when it was uh, called the Beverly Garland. Yeah, because I remember, I remember, I had just um, uh, uh, Mary Carey was there too, and uh-huh. I think she was running for governor at the uh-huh. time. So how how little things have changed. And Alan said, so. "You need that." And I looked and I thought, "Yeah, I actually do need that." <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's you never know what, what the, the six degrees of separation. Exactly. This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. So to get to get right into it, our guest today is is uh, Dan Adius. Who uh, whose name may not be as familiar to you as his work, uh, because Dan is uh, I've known I've known Dan since 1983, when he was the uh, second or third assistant on the Twilight Zone movie, Lord. Um, having previously worked uh, on White Dog with Sam Fuller. Oh wow! And uh, then he managed to parlay that into a, uh, a directing job for, uh, and so he became uh, a member of the rarefied group of werewolf directors. Uh, with a movie called Silver Bullet, uh, which still has quite a fan base uh, after all these years. And, uh, but then he found his way into directing series television, from which he has actually never left. He's, he's, if you, if you, you probably have seen one or more things that Dan has directed. Can I just jump in? Because I was looking at this list and it was like, I am the world's biggest TV snob. I only watch, you know, if people go, it's pretty good. I'm like, I'm not interested. It's 400 hours. I will only watch great TV shows. And 
Miami Vice, Sledgehammer, Northern Exposure, Picket Fences, Six Feet Under, The Killing, The Marvelous Mrs. Basil, The Americans, and then the Holy Trinity of Deadwood, The Sopranos, and The Wire. He left I, out The Sopranos. I said Deadwood, The Sopranos, oh, and The Wire. It's the Holy Trinity, Joe. I, I, I just, I was like, left oh, out The God. Americans. I said the Americans. Like, We've got tape. We've got tape. We said it. Um, but anyway, I, and then and then what about a thousand others? Left out the practice. <laughs> it would anyway, take. He, does, he gets a lot of work. Yeah, this guy, uh, and they often invite him back, which is you know one of the tricks in the series TV is that you you can you can go up there and you can do an episode for them, and you you can think it was a pretty good episode, but for some reason they just decide that you they don't want you to come back. They they thought you. Your episode was fine, but uh, you somehow end up not ever going back. But uh, the um, but Dan has Dan's list includes an alarming number of shows that had him back, not just once or twice, but but more than that. And uh, as a result, I think that uh, he's probably gotten his images into more people's heads than um, than a lot of other directors. Well, would this be a good time that I could sneak in a plug for my book because I've written I say yes about, about that called Directing Great Television and Inside TV's New Golden Age. And uh, I won't belabor that during the podcast, but it's, it's, out, it's out now. Um, it's available on Amazon. And yes. uh, I think it'll appeal to directors of TV and also directors of any ilk. And also, I believe, just fans of TV, because it's like there's a lot of stories from my own experience, of, you know, dealing with, uh, with the actors, with the producers, with the onset challenges and storytelling challenges of, you know, what I imagine are likely to be some of your favorite shows, or your readers' favorite shows. So that's, uh, that's exciting. It's a, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really smart how-to book uh, for people who uh, are hoping to be directors or even people who are currently directors and would like to get some other insights about, you know, how other directors handle problems, the same problems that tend to come up over and over again, because directing is problem solving, basically. Uh, and, you know, you solve one problem and then you go on to another show and you have a new problem. So uh, how, it's how adept you are at solving those problems that uh, allows you to continue in this business. When, when's your book coming out, Joe? Uh, uh, probably a day after I'm put under. <laughs> <laughs> You should write one. Written, you got to write a book. Written by somebody else. Hey, Joe, can I, can I just jump on that uh, when you were listing my, mentioning our, our, his, our mutual history on uh, Twilight Zone? I always hasten to mention that that was a four-episode compilation feature, and I was not, thankfully, on the infamous episode uh, where there was a terrible tragedy that occurred. I was just on your episode, George Miller's episode, and Stephen's episode. No, nor, nor, nor was very many other people because that was done yeah. as a separate film before yeah. the rest of the movie yeah. was even greenlit. I mean, they said, okay, you can do this episode because you're not going to be available. And so they went off with a different crew and did that episode. And then they had the accident. And the rest of us figured, well, that's probably going to be the end of this movie. But for whatever purposes, Warner Brothers decided they really did want to have another Spielberg-produced movie. And they went ahead and uh, and made the movie, but the 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 the, the upside for us was that George and I uh, got left completely alone uh, to do our episodes, and, and we and and we got a very um, misleading impression of what it's like to work in a big studio because you have all this expertise and all this money and all these all this talent and time, and nobody tells you what to do. We figured this is this is great. 
Then, of course, we both made our next movie for the studio and discovered that that really isn't the way it works at all. You think it was because it was under the aegis of Spielberg or what? No, it was because they, it was a hot potato and nobody wanted to be responsible uh, for it. But they still wanted it. They wanted it to be done and they wanted it to come out, but they didn't want to have to be responsible for it. Well, I, I thought those, uh, particularly yours and uh, George's, were really, uh, really excellent. Ex- excellent filmmaking. Really good. Yeah, those are definitely those are my two favorite too. Um, so yeah, Dan, I mean, I just you know, uh, when, when Joe told me you were coming on, and uh, uh, as he said, your name is not familiar as, as some of our guests. I was like, oh, let me look this guy up, and I just I nearly fell over you. I mean, you've literally I can't I can't think of a TV show I love in the last thirty years that you haven't worked on. I'm um, sure there are a few, but that's one of the interesting things about episodic directing is. In so many ways, it's identical. Directing is directing, and it's identical in so many ways to feature directing. Essentially, you know, the director is responsible for the actor's performances, for the positioning of the camera, for the moment-to-moment storytelling. You know, what's happening in each moment, monitoring that, to being involved with you know all the decisions and all that. But it's different in some in some critical other ways. Uh, the most important, I guess, being that you're really ultimately serving the vision of the showrunner. So you have to, whereas in a feature, you can, you know, develop the script generally in conjunction with a writer and your input is taken into, into account. That doesn't really exist in episodic series. You can affect the, you can affect the vision that the show has, but it's generally only with the permission of the showrunner. So that, that's a big difference. There's also the time element that's, that's, you know, it's so compressed, you know, where, uh, whereas in a feature you might have, you know, weeks or several weeks or several months even to prep a TV show. You get, you know, between seven and 10 days to prep uh, an hour episode, which is half as long as a feature. So there's that. There's, there's the fact that you have, uh, you know, in serialized shows, which are the ones I most enjoy, you're telling a segment of the story. It's like, a, you know, but then there's also just you don't have the. Uh, Prestige doesn't have the cachet. It's, people don't know who you are, essentially, which is fine for me. But it's a different. It's a different. You know, the superstar is always the writer, or or the, the writer creator. So it's terrible, uh, terrible, not surprising terrible, that you don't know my name. You wouldn't know my name because that's just you know spiritually, it's a good place to be in. Good for humility and all that. But it's uh, you don't get the uh, get the uh, recognition you do when you. Doing features. Did you ever get in on the, a show in the pilot stage? I've done a few of those. It's not, it, I, I haven't enjoyed any of those experiences because in some of those, in, in funny ways, uh, you can even have less say in because there's so many hands like kind of looking over your shoulder and making decisions. But I, I got to say, I so admire the really, the, the excellent, the directors who are really good, good at it and can do it repeatedly. It's a real gift. I find my strength. I, frankly, enjoy the process of kind of coming in and uh, having elements in place and then having givens uh, that I have to deal with and then getting to kind of find my creativity, finding my voice within them. I I find it, it's funny, it's a little bit like um, a a guy did an interview for me for the DJ Quarterly a couple years ago and he looked at my resume and says, you know, this looks like an actor's resume. And I was thinking, yeah, it kind of does because I do comedies. I do, I do different things. And I realized that's, that's what I started out wanting to be after film school, after, you know, 
I decided not to go to law school and didn't know what I wanted mm. to do. I, I, I started, you know, trying to act for, for about three years and which was great training as a director, but, uh, the appeal of acting as of the actor is you kind of fit into, you have to kind of say yes to givens and you have to just fit, find yourself within a different kind of sensibility and, and fit yourself into it. And I think that's something I really respond to. So I am really drawn to shows that exist, that have a kind of different way of looking at the world and kind of making it mine. It starts out as not mine. So that's my particular kind of interest i mean i'm still i still look for features and stuff like that but i find it, uh, I, I really do enjoy that that process well we we wanted to kind of pick your brains from the other angle that uh, you know we sort of carved out as our own of like what are what are the movies that have inspired you and, and you had a really interesting idea you want to talk about some of the moments that have kind of inspired you in movies over the years and i yeah, yeah, I've listened to your guys' podcasts, and I think they're so great. And I started to think, well, 10 movies, what would I think about? And, and in doing it, I realized, you know, uh, what interests me, and it's funny because it actually had something to do with how I, what I wound up writing about, is it's like, you know, we are narrative creatures. I mean, we create our lives through the stories we tell about who we are. And I think that's why, that's one of the great draws to, you know, film or novels or anything. It's like we're drawn to stories because we either want confirmation of the stories we tell about who we are, or we want new ways of thinking about our lives that maybe can alleviate some of the pain and suffering or just inadequacies of the stories that the narratives we have. And I'm always drawn, when I direct, uh, what is always kind of uh, an interesting thing for me and my way into the stories, because my theory about this is that you know, when I, one of the things also about series television directing, that's so quick and you have to kind of connect to the material. And as we were just saying, it doesn't start out as yours. I have to make it mine. I have to take total responsibility for the storytelling, even though, you know, it's David Chase's show or it's, you know, David Milch's show, or whatever it is. It's like, I can't approach it that way. I have to understand that's what it ultimately is. But I, in the, in the process of directing, I have to make it mine. So I have to find out ways I can care about the story passionately as much as any director who has created the whole whole work from uh, from the get-go and is doing a feature film i have to try my best to make that my experience and my way into these these stories generally i've I only realized it in trying to in deconstructing my process and, uh, and mentoring other directors and writing this book was what details try hits me what's mm. the moment what is what is nagging at me what what either really moves me about the story or what bothers me about it that I have to kind of dig deeply. That's because it transcends my rational thinking. It's just something that goes in a, in a deep way. And when I was thinking about these you know, 10 movies, um, I was thinking, well, it's also interesting to consider what 10 moments really move me. And yeah. Josh, you, you asked me a really interesting question. You said, yeah, I wonder if you, know, you could give thought to even moments of, even in films that weren't big hits or maybe even that weren't even good films. <laughs> what, what, you know, where were moments? And I don't know if I got very far in that, although I hope in this next uh, period of time we'll, we'll be able to come up with some and talk about it. But I really think that when you think about, when I thought about films, moments in films that affected me, and what I love about that exploration is it certainly says a lot about the film because it does open up, well, how did that moment affect me? How was that platform? How, how did that moment get created? What was the, 
context that was created and the conflicts that were introduced and the meaning that was being played with that made that moment so resonant. That's one thing that it talks to the art of the film. Mm-hmm. But what I also really am drawn to, and this goes to this point I was starting with about we're narrative creatures, it's like it's so revealing about ourselves. It's like the moment that strikes me is not necessarily going to be the moment that strikes you or Joe right. or anybody. It's the moment that's going to strike me is the moment that my soul, for lack of a better word, is struggling with or is, you know, it's, and it, again, transcends consciousness. And it, it's not necessarily, you know, you could, you could have all kinds of reasons moments affect you. You could be, you know, you could want vengeance for something. It doesn't have to be a noble thing. It doesn't have to be in the interest of your development. It could be, I want to see that mother get his due because I'm, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested in these moments for what they can open up within each of us. And I'm hoping you guys will, will join me in that. And I'm sure you will. It's just what were the things that, that struck you? So those were the kind of things I thought about. And I came up with a bunch of moments and mostly great films, but not all. <laughs> oh, excellent. Yeah, because I, I always love that. I mean, it's, it's why it, it's hard to walk out of a movie. I've done it. But, you know, you never know. Even the worst film, there might be a couple of minutes of just sort of like transcendence there. That, uh, yeah. Or even yeah. on a mercenary level, something that you can steal, you know. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, because that's that's always there. Um, but yeah, why don't well, let's let's start with let's pick one and let's go. Well, you know, I'm gonna just once it's coming to mind right now. It's not necessarily the most uh, profound moment I ever had, but it kind of it, it it's it's uh, it illustrates a point that I was trying to make about that we're narrative creatures that we live by stories and and some of the great films I think or great moments for me in films is when my own story got upended by mm-hmm. something I, I was made to see. The fact that it's a story. I mean, it's like we all live by stories, but most and most of us think it's reality. Oh, this is the way the world is. No, no, this is the story I'm saying about the world. And it's like when a film can show you, oh, it's not necessarily the way it is. I think it can be profound. And the one and one that jumps out at me came in the film Witness, Peter Weir's Witness. Hey man. Hey. They didn't know there was a witness. Carter didn't tell me about the eyewitness. Yeah, Amish kid, eight years old. A man of force. I'm a police officer, ma'am. I have to talk to the boy. A woman of faith. You don't understand. We have nothing to do with your laws. Yes, I do. Your son's a material witness to a homicide. Worlds apart. Now you have a witness. Yeah, now I got a witness. John, what's going on, man? What is happening? You said we would be safe in Philadelphia. Well, I was wrong. You left with the Amish woman, right? If they find me, they find the boy. You bring this man to our house with his gun of the hand? You bring fear to this house? Everyone has an idea about you and the Englishman. They're looking for you. <laughs> I have done nothing against the rule of the Ordnance. Nothing? Maybe not yet. We know where you are. Harrison Ford and Kelly McGillis. Witness. And I've never seen this. I'm, I would imagine others have noticed this, but I, I don't read a lot of reviews or stuff like that. I'd be curious if you guys have heard if this was ever commented on. But in Witness, there is this moment where uh, you know Harrison Ford has come to this uh, Amish community. He's surrendered his handgun, 
as he convalesces. He's trying to protect this young boy, Lucas Haas. And uh, he's assimilating into this community, he's seeing a new way of being. They renounce physical violence, right? And uh, the dirty cops that Ford is trying to uh, defeat find out where he is and they come to this Amish community. And Ford is uh, without his gun and he's convalescing and the bad guys show up. Danny Glover is one, I forget the other actor who is another. And they come into the uh, kitchen where, uh, who's the woman who plays? Kelly McGillis. Yeah, right, Kelly McGillis. And her father, the patriarch of the whole place is uh, they're there and these two guys come in with guns and they say, okay, where is John Book? You know, we just want him and uh, not, you know, you don't have to worry about anything else, just hand him over. And the patriarch, and, you, and they're holding guns on these two. And you think, okay, the jig is up. And uh, the patriarch sees Lucas Haas hiding. He's the one they want. And he makes a gesture to the boy. And it's a kind of, he takes his hand out and he kind of squeezes his hand twice. Mm-hmm. And he's telling the boy something. And I just assume, okay, go get the handgun. Because we've hidden it from, you know, Jonathan Book. But go get the handgun. Because my story is, well, of course, there's sometimes violence is the only way you can address certain things. And uh, that's what he's telling the boy to do. And no, but uh, isn't it? Uh, but yeah, but it turns out. But, uh, right. Yes. You're right. That's exactly right. So he goes, he goes to, uh, he goes, and then they take, they take the, the Kelly Gillis and the old man, and they're walking through that town. And suddenly the community bell starts to clang. And what he was really telling the boy was grab hold of the rope and the bell. pull it. And, yeah. and, and so the whole community then converges on the square and they're faced with this choice of either killing everybody or surrendering. And they do. And that moment, just I just was stunned because I realized I, I had it interpreted according to my story. And I have to think that, you know, Peter Weir was doing this deliberately. I had it interpreted in terms of my story. But the, the overriding theme of the film was violence. You know, think again when you think violence is the only way to deal with it. So that was a moment that I just thought was, a, was brilliant filmmaking. It wasn't one that went in the most emotionally for me, right. but it turned around my story. You know, my- well, That's interesting, because yeah, I, I don't think I ever took it, yeah. um, and, and it goes to sort of, I guess, my story, because I grew up uh, in Philadelphia and went to um, Quaker schools, and uh, which is very, you know, it's Amish adjacent, I guess, if you will, in terms of philosophy. So yeah, yeah I mean, and the film had done such a, uh, uh, admirable job of kind of showing that life and their commitment to it. But yeah, for me, it was just like, I, I, I don't think I knew what he was saying, but it just, it never would have. Cause I, I'm like, I'm, you know, immersed enough in that culture. It was like, Oh, of course he's not asking for a gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I guess, but if you hadn't, you know, come from that to some extent, yeah, it's interesting. You'd see it. And they could have, I mean, it could have very easily made it more clear what it was, but I yeah. love it when you engage the audience in such a way that you're going to give the audience a moment where they kind of are caught out a minute having to make sense of things and suddenly they're not so sure of every, of the way they you know, yeah. understand it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great movie yeah. too, of course. Uh, yeah. Cool. There was another moment in that I, I was going to say was also the dance between uh, Harrison Ford and, uh, am I blanking on her name? Kelly McGillis. Yeah, when they're playing, uh, you know, What a Wonderful World, you know. Oh, yeah. And to and again, the thing that that I personally respond to is just this: these two others coming together. I mean, these just this such different human beings, worldview, everything, kind of having a moment of meeting. 
to me really goes hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. So that was uh, that was hit number one, I guess I'd mention. <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. That's a great one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What's next? Well, there were two that I realized as I did this. This was I love this exercise because it's like a lot of themes kind of kept showing up, and it just speaks to where I'm at. I am in my life, and what my life's journey is, and the issues that I'm trying to trying to grapple with internally, and. Uh, you know, not to be too self-revelatory, -re -re but what the hell, we're here together trying to be open. I, I noticed that there were several moments that really struck me about a, a character who was closed down. The pain of life was too much, and they numbed out, and they shut down, and they became either self-destructive or just lost any ambition. And the moments, and I'll mention a few of them, because they really, really, to this day, I review these films in anticipation of this discussion, and I'm just wrecked watching them. I just, you know, of when someone comes alive, when someone faces their demon, faces the pain, recognizes the pain of staying closed is greater than uh, the pain of becoming vulnerable again. And, and there were, there were uh, the one that really jumps out at me is from The Verdict, Sidney Lumet's great film. And um, uh, I'll back up, it was tandem. That, that and the other movie that I want to talk about is Scent of a Woman. There were two moments in Scent of a Woman that, that really, really continue to affect me so much. And again, how, do, how, is, how are these moments created? I mean, Scent of a Woman did such a brilliant to me, did such a, I know some people thought Pacino was over the top and all that. I just thought he was great. And, uh, and he was great showing a character who was so, and so, so disgusted himself, so given up on himself that he was just impossible, immensely talented character, but was carrying a wound that was so great. He had totally given up on himself. You know, he says when he's finally confronted by Chris O'Donnell, I'm no good. I'm just no good. Go get out of here. And the moment that, there are two moments I want to talk about. The first was deep into the film when, uh, when Pacino, Frank, has uh, persuaded the kid, manipulated him to take him to New York so he can kind of act out his bucket list, everything he wants to do before he kills himself. Uh, he does this, and he tricks the kid to go leave him alone in the hotel room. He knows, O'Donnell knows that his plan and he's made him promise you're not going to do this and he's made him give up the clip of the bullets out of his gun and uh he realizes that he's going down to get cigars that oh my god i'm leaving him alone i bet there's something afoot and he comes back and there is pacino at his low ebb about to kill himself and he's not going to be stopped and o'donnell uh through his own innocence and his own love for the charismatic soul that was, is, is Frank, is Pacino's character. And he's, and he's so pure, O'Donnell, that he won't let him do it. And Pacino tries to, does everything he can to scare him away. Get the hell out of here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. If you don't leave, I'm going to finally just tell him I'm going to kill you. And uh, the moment Chris O'Donnell just, you know, you can tell he's scared out of his mind, but his love for who Pacino really is at heart is so great that he, he just says, and go ahead and do it. Just do it. You know, you're, it's all right. You're just like, 
you should do it because it's like you're right it's all worthless there's no you know there's nothing here just do it and pacino can't do it it's like it's because of this inter it's it's interactive here it's it's like the fact that he's gotten to know this kid and how special this kid is who's standing up against you know a lot of adversity at this school it's that moment that finally breaks pacino's resolve and you can just feel it in the performance you can feel it it's like you know he's not going to ever do it again it's like at that point he's he's broken in the best of ways he's found again himself and mm -hmm. i just think that's an incredible moment and then the genius to me of that film um <laughs> is there's a wonderful second moment and that is when pacino shows up in the school assembly and this kid is about to be railroaded you know his life is going to be ruined because of the role of the privileged people who you know have all the pretentiousness and all the advantages you know the ones that were born on third base and think they hit a triple you know those guys and uh the kid is about to be steamrolled out and you can see all the force of the, the high the societies and the society's superstructure and all that and the years of tradition that have obviously been perverted into a hollow shell of what it really should be and pacino stands up for him and uh he's in a position finally to stand He's been restored through the kids' love of him. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, through the kids' love of him, he has now he he is now in a position to be the advocate that the kid needs. Mr. Sims, I will give you one final opportunity to speak on. Mr. Sims doesn't want it. He doesn't need to be labeled still worthy of being a bad man. What the hell is that? What is your motto here? Boys, inform on your classmates, save your hide. Anything short of that, we're going to burn you at the stake? Well, gentlemen, when the shit hits the fan, some guys run and some guys stay. Here's Charlie facing the fire, and there's George hiding in Big Daddy's pocket. And what are you doing? You're going to reward George and destroy Charlie. Yeah, I, you're sort of making me think about... um. Uh... God, I can't remember the specific. The um, remember at the end of uh, the piano when uh, Holly Hunter oh. sort of giving up on everything and decided to you know go go over the side of the boat with the piano um, and oh, losing right. everything. And it's this heart wrenching moment. And the movie could easily end with that. And then there's this incredible moment where she's in the water and she just clearly has a moment of like, "Fuck this! I'm I'm going to live." Choosing that's life. Not, yeah, that's yeah. Great. It's just it's one of my favorite great. moments in the movie. Yeah, yeah. And that's the same theme, isn't it? It's like something happens where you see someone connecting again. That's to me just is is fantastic. There's a moment in the, the pawnbroker. Um, oh, that was on my list. Please, what was, was the one you were going to say? Yeah, well, I was going to say when when uh, Saul Nazerman, the uh, the concentration camp survivor, uh, who's you know eking out a living in the in the slums as a doing as a pawnbroker. Um, when, when the, the vicissitudes of the movie pile up to a point where he can't stand it anymore and he feels that he's completely lost touch with reality and he takes his hand and he pushes it onto a giant, uh, letter, 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 letter holder or whatever with a, with a sharp point and he pushes it all the way down. And it's not like we, I don't remember that we see it exactly, but we, we feel it. 
Joe, yeah. I'm so happy you you were bringing that up, and I'm so happy it, it's one of your favorite moments because that was that was right there on my list. The, the, the top three for me are Center Woman, The Verdict, I'm going to get to, and The Pawnbroker. Last two of which both were Sydney Lumet films, which is right. really interesting. And I was actually hoping, and I still hope, that our mentioning and talking about The Pawnbroker may be Josh kind of one of those instances you were talking about, like maybe people listening don't know that film. Cause it's an yep. old, well, probably not. Film. I mean, it's not, it's not exactly an entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> and so let me, let me uh, expand on what you're saying and also make some comparisons to this dynamic that I think Scent of a Woman uh, had where you had this pure young Chris O'Donnell soul is the one that brings, finally brings Pacino back to life. And then, and then there's this great moment where then Pacino can stand up for him. But the pawnbroker, oh my God. What's so beautiful is if you recall, if I can fill that in, yeah. It's like there are all these, uh, he was a survivor of Auschwitz, right? And there's all these kind of uh, subliminal cuts. You know, it's funny, I was just, my book is actually, the publisher of my book is also publishing a few other books in, uh, coming out and one, one of which is Jerry Lewis's, uh, called The Total Filmmaker. It's when he oh, gave that yeah. yeah. And it's, it's coming out again. Uh, I'm wondering why I thought of that. Well, anyway, he talk, Lewis talks in his book a little bit about the pawnbroker too. But, uh, but what happens in the pawnbroker is he has, if you recall, he, you know, he was a survivor. Oh, yeah, this is what Lewis was talking about. He says, yeah, I don't know about these subliminal cuts. Now everybody's going to do subliminal. He, he was, this was from like in the 60s. Lewis was giving these, these classes. And in the pawnbroker, Lumet did all these kind of quick cuts, subliminal to steiger being a young man and kind of frolicking in the field with a beautiful wife and then you learn that she was killed in a concert in auschwitz right so he's shut down completely from this and uh and then this young puerto rican kid comes to work for nazarman and he's the agent that brings nazarman alive he's idealized nazarman i mean there's some anti-Semitic tropes there. And he says, well, you people, you're good at making money and everything, but I respect you. And how did you do it? And I want to learn. I want to sit at your feet. And, and uh, Nazarman can't deal with this. He can't deal with being, you know, idealized. And as he's being invited to feel, because he's involved, who is it? Eva Marie Saint, I think, is all, it's like a social worker who's kind of- I don't here. think it was her. Anyway, somebody is like, he's having, he's having issues are coming up. These subliminal flashes keep coming back. And he winds up, in a defensive mode, trying to shut down his own feelings, becoming a complete bastard, more so than even he has been. And he finally turns on this young Puerto Rican who, not so subtly, is named Jesus, Jesus. And he, uh, he, he, the kid keeps idealizing him, tell me how you did it. And finally, Nazareth just says, I'll tell you how I did it. I don't give a shit about anything. I don't care about you. I don't care about, you know, it's like the only thing you should do is get, get for yourself. That's all you should ever do. Don't get any feelings. And it's like the kid is so hurt and so demoralized that he winds up responding to his friends, uh, you know, the gang members who have been trying to recruit him who want to rob the pawn shop. And he says, well, okay, let's rob the pawn shop. I'll let you in, but you can't hurt the guy. They say, no, 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 we won't. And they, they break into the pawn shop and uh, things go bad. And the friend that he let in is about to shoot Nazarman. And the kid, Jesus, who idealizes man, runs and takes the bullet for him and is killed. And he saved Nazarman's life. 
And it's that act that is so painful for Nazareth not to be able to, this man could express love for him that he has to feel something. And that's when that moment happens. It's so painful for him to stay closed, in other words. And I agree with you. I'm not sure exactly how it works. I don't think you see the impaling happen. I think you just see a cut to his hand with the thing sticking up out of it. But he yeah, forces, it's all on it. I think it's all in his face. And it, yeah. It's just all he forces himself to feel pain again just so he can awake to the magnificence of this, of Jesus's sacrifice for him and the value Jesus saw in him. And he understood that it was a betrayal to not honor the sacrifice and connect again to life. So that's, that's I just think that was a brilliant, brilliant film and a brilliant moment. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a great one. Yeah. Um, hang on, let me check. Yeah, and it's because it's, it's uh, been unavailable for a while, but it is back on video. And our sponsor, MoviesUnlimited.com, has it. Um, good place to take a break and just remind folks to go to MoviesUnlimited.com, the movie collector's website. Uh, they are great fans of our show, and they feature tons of the movies we talk about. Um, and if they don't, because it doesn't exist on video generally uh so you should definitely check them out also all this month september every title from criterion is on sale um so uh go visit moviesunlimited.com buy your favorites at moviesunlimited.com you'll find classics imports hard to find films and of course new releases too the prices are great and the choices are endless own the titles you love and enjoy all the bonus features you just don't get elsewhere whenever you want Yep. Uh, just click the Movies Unlimited banner on the Trailers from Hell website and you can get your favorites from hard-to-find films, imports, and more. Go now to MoviesUnlimited.com, the movie collector's website, where shipping is always free. Orders over $50. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Um, sorry, Dan, let's get back to it. You know, let's turn for a second then, I guess, to the other, uh, another great Sidney Lumet film. God, there's so many of them. Uh... But the verdict. His name is Frank Galvin. Four cases in the last three years. He's lost them all. He drinks. This man's scared to death to go to court. Frankie, listen to me because I'm done with you. I got you a good case. It's a moneymaker. The archdiocese called up because the case is coming to trial. This is our chance to get away. I want to see that you get that chance. Court exists to give him a chance at justice. And is that what you're going to do? Maybe I can do something right. And in that one, again, similar story. Not that he, I mean, I guess, yeah, not that that was always his theme. I mean, Dog Day Afternoon and Serpico and all those were certainly not that. But, um, but in that one, I think Newman was such a lost character. And yeah. again, like, uh, like Pacino, like Frank in, uh, in Son of a Woman, an immensely talented, charismatic human being, you know, who, who was lost, who was lost and, and felt self-hatred, you know, felt great deficiency, uh, and so acted all that out. 
And uh, you see him for the benefit, I mean, I, I imagine most, I mean, certainly the three of us I know have seen the film, but just to recap for those who might not know it, it's, it's you know, he's become an ambulance chaser. He's now, I guess Newman was probably about 60, 65 when he made it. And, uh, you know, he's an ambulance chaser. He's drunk. He's, he's, you know, cynical. He's a terrible lawyer. He doesn't take care of his clients at all. He, he cra- oh, there's so these painful scenes at the beginning where he's reading the obits and he's showing up, you know, with mouthwash to clear out the alcohol in his breath, and he shows up at the funerals. The funerals, tries to, right. Yeah, and tries to present himself as a friend of the oh, right. And he yeah. listens if there's anything I can do and hand them their card, and he's paid off the funeral director to let him get, him get in on it. And there are these moments where these family members just look at him like and say, who the hell are you? And then they just say, you're despicable. And you see, he, he completely agrees with them. Yeah. And he just, you know, schleps off. And uh, the great Jack Warden, you know, is his one friend who remembered when he was a good lawyer and was trying to, and he throws him a bone. He says, okay, um, look, Frank, what the hell are you doing? In two weeks, these people are calling me. I gave you this thing a year and a half ago. It's a slam dunk case. You're going to get back. You know, they, they, you haven't even contacted them. And it's about a malpractice suit. And, and this woman who was pregnant was wrongly anesthetized and is now a vegetable and a working class uh, uh, sister and brother-in-law or brother and sister-in-law to just need some money because they're, you know, they need representation. And he's blown that too. He hasn't even, and, and he's, he's, and he, he takes their case and uh, something changes in him. I actually think that was a slight flaw in the movie. The moment that he changes is when he goes to take a picture of the woman who's uh, now a vegetable. And uh, something in what he sees is meant to convey. It didn't really, for me, work that as well as I think it might have. Something there really sees. I can't just forsake these people. There's something so wrong that has been done here that I've got to find justice for these people. Uh, I think that moment might have been stronger. But he then goes ahead and cleans up his act. and, And in a long, torturous process... You know, he's up against James Mason's firm, which is like well-heeled and it's got all the money and they got all the expert test witnesses. He's got only one witness. And uh, that one turns out to be bought off by James Mason right at the critical moment. So he keeps, he keep, it's like, it's all stacked against him. But you see the brilliant lawyer he once was as he's kind of recovering himself. And he befriends Charlotte Rampling, who is also a kind of lost soul. And he meets her at a bar. And uh, she's off to, on her own, and uh, he kind of tries to pick her up. She's not interested. He, she, another time, he picks her up again, and she says, okay. And they share their misery, and they become a pair. And the first moment I want to talk about is late in the story when, when he's losing repeatedly to James Mason's firm, which has you know, a battery of 20 lawyers and you know, the whole establishment behind them. You see James Mason kind of giving this very idealistic speech to someone. I don't know who it is. And he says, uh, listen, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing. It's important work you're doing because what you're doing is you're funding us to be able to do the important work we do. You know, it's cases like these that give us the opportunity to do all kinds of pro bono important work. So thank you very much. And then you see who he's talking to is Charlotte Rampling. So this character who has been helping Newman restore himself 
and seems to be a meeting, meeting him at a soul level because he and she understands what it means to be lost is actually betraying him. And I love that moment uh, because it really for how, in the context of the movie, because how broken you saw it's possible a human being to be. It's like she was so broken that, you know, she, and she was so lost in her brokenness that she actually agreed to this thing, which was loathsome even to her. And that, you know, I, I looked at this film and that, I was surprised that was the moment because I thought the moment I really wanted to talk about is the next one where Newman gives his closing speech. That was the one that I thought was so great. But I think that's another great, great moment for building, helping to build the context of Newman's transformation because, again, it's so hard to be a human being in some cases. You know, I think to keep your feeling life alive, that life can really defeat you so easily. It's so, and it's like the film was brilliant at showing, I thought, how, how life can do that. And in a realistic way, in a way that I think, you know, viewers can really understand and not feel as hokey or, or ginned up or anything. And, uh, and so the moment is when he seems to have lost. He's gotten, uh, is it Lindsay Krause, I think, is the woman who's yeah. comes in. Yeah. 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 And she gives fantastic testimony. And then through a legal maneuver, James Mason is able to get it all thrown out. The jury is instructed, you cannot even consider this. So now it looks like every possible way he's, he could be screwed, he's been screwed. He's now finally come alive. He's, he's gotten his, his powers back, his belief in himself back, and it's being challenged to the core again. Is he going to go back into you know, victimization and all that stuff? And he doesn't. He makes a peroration to the jury, which is so beautiful. It's so beautifully written. I don't know who wrote it. Oh, yeah, Mammoth, David Mammoth. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, right. Lindsay Krause's husband. Yeah, well, there you go. And what I, lo- I love the speech to the jury for so many reasons. First of all, Newman's performance is just luminous. Yeah. And what I love about it is how spare is the argument. He doesn't do what you might expect which is to say to the jury, hey, this is so, you guys know what's right. I mean, do you see it? She just showed you what really happened. And now they're just because of this legal maneuver, it's, it's not fair and you guys can change it. Doesn't do that. He just says very spare. He says, you know, in our system, I mean, it's so easy to get discouraged in life and in our system. You never, sometimes you just think you can't win. But today, you are the justice system. It's you. It's what's in your heart. That's all you have to follow. And it's such a beautiful statement of kind of what the movie is about on a bigger theme level and who this character is in a bigger way. And uh, he gives it with such dignity and such simplicity that it's the moment that to me is just, again, a a radiant, radiant, beautiful moment. And they win and, and all that. And then there's the great thing where he sees Charlotte Rampling, you know, afterwards and you know, it's not going to happen. She has a price to pay because she couldn't rise to the moment. Yeah. And, uh, beautiful film. Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah. It is a yeah. great film. Yeah. Uh, I love that one. Yeah. Uh, cool. Let me take a turn and ask you guys for some moments. I can keep going. Let me hear anyone. Yeah, you're doing fine. Yeah, no, they're coming to listen to us. Well, those are my big ones. I mean, I have several others to talk about, but those those are really important to me because, you know, I mean, that's, you know, that's to me one of the fundamental 
challenges as we go through life is how to stay fully a human being, you know, how to stay right. fully open to our feelings and, and to be able to deal with life and pain and all that and still say, stay open and appreciative of innocence and beauty, with, even within ourselves, because it's so hard. And the great films, the great stories, you know, show that. I mean, to me, a great, that's what a great story shows. Uh, not always. There are other kinds of stories, but this is this is a story very dear to me, and why I can be so moved by it. And and what defeats it is when it's and it's not done authentically. When it's when the writer and the director and everybody contributing to the storytelling haven't really been been honestly confronting a real dilemma. You know, it's like you know when it's done melodramatically or when it's done cheaply. You know, you don't feel it, but when you really sense and they don't, have done the work. And sometimes it requires an actor with great depth of soul that you can kind of see it in their face. But it's more than that. You need to, uh, you know, create the world. You know, I mean, that's that's uh, you know, that's something. You know, it's funny when I was trying to figure out what do I have. I started writing this book, and I thought, okay, well, what can I say? Well, you talk about dealing with actors. You can talk about the other things and camera and all those things. But one of the things that I realized I wanted to write a chapter about is kind of what I'm talking about here. It's like the importance as directors and writers we have in contextualizing and creating the world of the story and creating what, what are the rules here? What, 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 you know, what are the elements here? Because if you don't provide the viewer with kind of the whole world and what is at stake and what are the values and what could happen and what might not happen, all those things, they have to exist for the moment to land. And if we haven't done our job, in constructing the storytelling and in the storytelling, you know, the identical performance simply won't land because people won't be prepared for it. So that's what really fascinates me a lot about this examination of moments is how, how did it get so power, powerful? I mean, if you just turned on that last scene in the verdict, you know, part of the trailer, you know, okay, I, I don't know. Yeah, that was nice, smart, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't, certainly wouldn't have affected me unless you saw, you know, Newman playing pinball machine and drinking scotches and waking up on his floor, you know, plastered. Oh, that's the but same I think, guy. I think sometimes the stuff can work. You know, if you talk about sort of great moments in less stellar films, um, yeah. sometimes just moments work for, you know, random reasons almost. Um, actually, it's a bad example because I love the movie, but you know, you think about true romance, which has got so many kind of just standalone scenes and you think of like Dennis Hopper and uh, Christopher Walken scene, which, um, you can excise from the film and show as a short and it just absolutely works independent of, of the outside context. Yeah. 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 Um, well, because we bring, I mean, it's true. We bring a lot of the contextualizing ourselves from just life and, uh, right. So I, or, or sometimes, yeah. Or sometimes it's just a great performing Joe. I don't know if you remember Joe, Joe has seen the, the one movie I directed a very low budget horror film, but there's a scene in it with the great Mark Margolis as a, as a priest, uh, giving a eulogy and it's his only scene and it ended up in the movie for a lot of reasons they're all silly and we don't need to go into but it, it, it's sort of written at the last minute and it's a it, it's not a good monologue and it's my favorite moment in the film it's the one i can go back to because somehow this incredible actor found a depth and a resonance in it that i i love to think was unconsciously there but was certainly not consciously there yeah. And he turns it into this, this rumination on mortality and, and aging and everything else in the middle of this dopey, sarcastic comedy horror film. And it's amazing. And it's just, you know, another actor would have come in and 
uh, you know, the, the monologue could have destroyed them because it's just not the best thing I've written. So it's like, I, I love sort of moments like that too, where you just sort of yeah. don't expect what you're about to get or, um, yeah, you know, or individually great performances in terrible films are fun too. And then, but then you have the, then you have the challenge of, and I wish I'd seen this film, I could comment on it, but, oh. but then you have the challenge of a film has to be integrated. You have to, you know, it's like, <laughs> You're, you're establishing a sensibility and you're creating a world. So, you know, it can't, you don't want to have three separate movies going right. on. The tone and, and what the issue, what's at issue and all that. Yeah. yeah. How to integrate. I mean, that's frankly the challenge. I well, often, that, you're talking about good movies now, but I'm, I'm talking about <laughs> those. Uh... That, that's the challenge I face as a series guest director. It's like how, if I come to a show that, uh, I mean, you know, well, you know, I'm, I'm, Unfortunately, for a, a while, I've been able to be pretty selective about what I do. But, you know, you never know. You're not going to get your script. You don't even get your script to it. You know, and often the day before I start prepping, you know, it's like, here's your script, go. You know, and you don't, you often get ones that aren't as good as others. So, you know, or, you, or, you know, when you're, or when sometimes you have, you take a job and it's not a great show. So how do you bring to it something that you can care about? That's to me, you know, often the issue I'm dealing with. And. And on top of that issue is, yeah, I can maybe invest it with a subtext I care about and all that, but how can I do it in a way that integrates with what the show's trying to do? You know, that's really becomes, becomes a challenge. But like in History of Violence, you know, it's like when I thought it was brilliant, like I love the opening, uh, you know, setting the context with these two guys. Who are these guys in this car? And, you know, it's like, you know, you set up a whole thing which made the reveal of what they were, the dead bodies in the gas station yeah. is even more shocking. And it's like, if you just had them walk in and do that, that wouldn't have, but the whole context of the whole slow kind of right. lingering shot, part of that was directorial, but I'm sure it was in the writing as well. And then creating, you know, Hugo Mortensen's whole character to contextualize, you know, bringing in Ed Harris and all that, you know, it's, it's all, you know, and I'm sure you as a writer are thinking about that. You know, yeah. Although I also say that that's one that worked. That one came out. Well. <laughs> But uh, that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> um, yeah, but I also think about stuff like you know, not not quite so uh, exalted. But um, I think I think kind of my have we talked about uh, uh, Jurassic Park two at all, Joe? I don't think so. <laughs> it's uh, um, I, I doubt anyone would claim it's Steven Spielberg's best movie or even in his top twenty. But there is one sequence in it uh, when they are, if you remember, I think the dinosaurs are shaped. They're on. They're in that bus. Or that kind of big, big, giant, whatever it is, sort of a bus, and it's hanging over the side of a cliff. And there's a glass window through which you can see the thousand foot drop to certain death. Dinosaurs are shaking the thing, and there's a hammer hanging from you know the side of the bus or something that's threatening to fall and hit the window that uh, the actress is on. And it is one of the most incredible, suspenseful, like purely. Hitchcockian scenes I've ever seen. It's amazing. I would just watch that scene over and over again and get more thrills than I would out of, you know, 52 hour thrillers. Um, and uh, it's, it's just, um, you know, in a film that otherwise doesn't quite live up to that, but it's an incredible moment. And, and I kind of love stumbling across those too, you know, where you're, um, uh, you're not, you're not expecting this. You're, you, you've already sort of given up on a thing or you're already sort of going, eh, this movie, and then something like that happens and it just sort of like snaps you back to attention. Um, that's always fun. 
Well, Joe, how about in your work? I mean, like in Gremlins, you did obviously they had to do a lot of contextualizing for this ever-changing reality of what these creatures were. You had to well, keep when you, creating, when you, creating the context. You know, when you have a when you have an absurd premise, uh, your 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 job is to try to make it seem as palatable as possible. And uh, and the, and sometimes the more realistically you play it, the more outlandish it seems. So. So in my experience, you, you have to just sort of go with where it's taking you. Uh, and if it's going to be a sort of a fairy tale, then you're going to have to go with that aspect of it. Because the, let's face it, the whole movie base is based on these ridiculous rules that are completely arbitrary and made up. And yet, if you don't buy them, you don't buy the story. And then the, the, the big worry for all of us was, well, what if they just go after they hear the rules? They go, that's stupid. I got to listen to that. But that that taught me that that audiences do want to like what they're watching and they will yes. give you the benefit of the doubt yes. if you play by the rules that you set and if you cheat then they get annoyed or confused or lost but but if you see, they say okay well, I'm gonna, I'm going to I'm going to buy into your fantasy of what you want to do but just make sure you don't you know cheat me you know by that not, is such not a, I think that out. is that's such an important point that's such a great point and I think bad directing and bad storytelling is when people are not aware that they're defining the world with every choice they make, whether it's the ethical standards of that world or whatever else. And if you just change it arbitrarily, you, you can't do that. You have to take into account everything that preceded it. You have to take responsibility for every moment. And, and because you're, you're right, the audience is, well, we so want stories. This goes to that same point that's so compelling to me that we all, we were desperate for stories. We, it's like stories are as old as a species. I mean, you know, cave paintings were telling stories, sitting around campfires and fires and, and, and in ancient Greece, you wanted to see, it's like we need narrative and we want it. And that's, it, sometimes I think about that in terms of when people ask about matching problems is, well, you know, the audience, I want to match and I want to stay consistent. This kind of argues against this point, but it's like the audience is sharing with you they're gonna they're gonna use their they're gonna hear they want to think just be credible okay now I'll go along with this fantasy yeah. it's like in a stage play this always interests me too it's like films seem to have this requirement that they be far more realistic than the experience of say walking into theater in a theater the artifice is right there you're sitting there you're seeing black backdrop and people saying okay now we're in you know 15th century we're in we're in uh, Henry V is battling you know the French on French soil. No, he's not. He's just he's like black curtains. But there's this sense like there's agreement happening every moment between the cast and the audience. You with me? This is now France, right? Yeah, okay, I got it. We're in France. There's constant agreement happening. In film, there's much more of a sense like, no, that doesn't look like France. What's going on? Is it, you know? So, uh, but we but we want audiences will participate. Will, you know, if you if you just are honest yourself and like, as you say, stay consistent. The audience, you have the audience's goodwill going in. It's just, yeah. I mean, they just, want to roll with you. And, right. you know, a, a, a great example I always use is Frank Capra's movies uh, have the continuity in Frank Capra's movies are all over the place. I mean, there's a, there's a scene in It's a Wonderful Life where after he's fished out of the water and he's at the top of the lighthouse and there's coffee cups, people are drinking things out of coffee cups. If you watch the scene, nothing they do. The cups are in the wrong hand. The cups are being drunk, the cups are still up, they're empty, they're full. But, you know, obviously his view was, and I'm sure this was brought to his attention, that, you know, well, you, this doesn't match. 
this is the best performance. This is the, this is what I want to say. This is the best thing. I'm going to put it together this way. And I'm telling you, they won't notice. And, and I've never, I've never read anybody complaining about that, you know, during that movie. Because subconsciously they do notice it and they don't give a shit because right. it's like, that's not what we're here for. Yeah. We're here for, there's heart in this story. And I want to, yeah. Boy, speaking of moments, we could spend a whole several hours talking about Frank Capra moments. How those work. Because that, he was the king of those, I think, in so many ways. Especially yeah, I think, the- No, it's just, I, think, I think you're right. I think, but I think that, um, you know, the audience only cares, uh, even if they're not noticing it overtly and just suddenly, but, but they only care when everything else isn't working. Right. Well, if, yeah, it's because working, if, if they're not with it, then they've got time to look around for what else might be wrong. That, that's yeah, that's exactly. why you can actually get away with sort of iffy special effects in a really good movie yeah. because they're not going to spend their time thinking, yeah, okay, it's not that good. But I want you ever see that movie about the, uh, the shark show where, the, yeah, where they have exactly. the big dopey robot shark that doesn't even work? I mean, it's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but they kept it off screen as much as possible. But yeah, talk about but lousy it's... films. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and then also you're talking about gremlins, talking about sort of, you know, a scene that you can... You know, the, the context is there and it works with the context, but another scene you can sort of take out modularly and, and make into a short um, is, is Phoebe, Phoebe Gates, Cates's, um, you know, her heartwarming Christmas story. Uh, I've always thought is one of the great kind of standalone scenes that. Uh... It was Christmas Eve. I was nine years old. Me and mom were, were decorating the tree, waiting for dad to come home from work. A couple hours went by. Dad wasn't home. Mom called the office. No answer. Christmas Day came and went, and still nothing. The police began a search. Four or five days went by. Neither one of us could eat or sleep. Everything was falling apart. It was snowing outside. The house was freezing, so I went to try to light up the fire, and that's when I noticed the smell. The firemen came and broke through the chimney top, and me and Mom were expecting them to pull out a dead cat or a bird, and instead they pulled out my father. Well, that was a very controversial story because they didn't, the studio didn't think it was very funny and uh, they thought it was in bad taste. And, uh, you know, they, they, why do you think it's funny if somebody's father gets stuck in a chimney and dies? You know, and they said, well, if you put it that way, <laughs> no, I guess that's not funny. What's astonishing her, though is they're, they're completely the, right. And yet to her, it's very perfect. serious. And then we <laughs> yes. like her. So we yeah. want to hear what she has to say and we yeah. feel for her. And even though the story she's telling is patently ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, it's still very heartwarming and heartwarming yeah. for her. When I was at the uh, preview of that movie, Jeffrey Katzenberg kicked the back of my seat after that scene and said, you sick fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Correct response. Um, well, Dan, do you have, you want to? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I got, I, got, yeah. I got him. Uh, here's one. Um, a moment that just moved me in a movie that I really enjoyed. Uh, Heaven Can Wait, the more recent one, 1978, Warren Beatty, McHenry. Um, and, uh, the moment, I mean, the whole film was a delight, another great role for Jack Warden, you know, just, you know, and, and Beatty was just, you know, in some ways that's my favorite Beatty performance. He's just so kind of innocent and charming and winning and kind of clueless and also endearing and all that stuff. 
And, you know, he's got this passion, right? He's going to quarterback the Rams to the Super Bowl. And uh, he unfairly is or mistakenly dies when Buck Henry uh, pulls him out of his body before, uh, before he should have. And, uh, and so he takes over the identity, as we know, again, to refresh people who might not know it. You know, he takes over the identity of this uh, rich guy who's a, a real, you know, uh, obviously indifferent to any humanitarian concern. And has just got a ruthless corporation. And Julie Christie is this, uh, you know, do-gooder who's, who's protesting the corporation. But now it's Warren Beatty who's occupying this presumably fairly old body uh, of this guy. We always see Warren Beatty, which is one of the charm, charming uh, but that's one of the interesting things about the premise of the movie, which is a, a remake, of course, of, of Here yeah. Comes Mr. Jordan. So that was not, yeah. that was 1940. Which I never I saw. I didn't see it. It's very good. But, yeah. it, but it has the same issue, which is that the audience has to buy the idea that the character looks like the character that he's, right. the character that he's, whose body he's inhabiting didn't look like him. But everybody who looks at him sees him. Right. And thinks right. that it's the other guy. Now that in 1941, that was kind of a screwy premise to probably to yeah. get through people, but it was a very popular movie. And and that premise you talk about is is very relevant to the moment I'm going to get to, uh, because you know they they don't see the young quarterback who who is gone, who used to be the quarterback for the Rams. They see somebody else, and so when he comes back, he buys the team, and he's going to now train to become the quarterback. Nobody sees the guy they knew. Jack Warden, who was best friends with this first, the first incarnation of Beatty, doesn't know him either. And so there's great, there's great comedy in, in Warden kind of believe, finally having to accept the unthinkable, the impossible. This is actually the same guy. And, uh, and as things roll out and he's training for the Super Bowl and he's winning games, and things are looking good. And he and Julie Christie are now lovers and just, you know, soulmates. Uh, James Mason... You know, another James Mason appearance, uh, you know, has beckons, you know, Joe. That was the character. That was Brady's character. Yeah. He says, Joe, it's time. He says, no, it can't be time. It's, you know, it's the, I, I'm just there. I'm almost there. Sorry, it's now time. And it's your time. And he knows he's not going to survive the game. And he tells uh, Julie Christie in something she can't even begin to understand. I, I didn't review the movie, so it's been a while since I saw it. But he tells Julie Christie, he says, you know, she, he says, uh, you know, uh, if you meet a guy and, uh, he, and he just happens to tell you, uh, invite you for a cup of coffee. This is how I remember it. I'm not sure if this is exactly right. Uh, would you maybe, you know, do that? And, and I forget how he conveys to her that it'll be me if I do that. <laughs> and she has no idea what he's talking that's nonsense. I mean, yeah, sure. Whatever. And, uh, anyway, so Beatty's character is killed in the, or the, the quarterback of the Rams is killed in a game. He goes out. It's like, it looks like he's dead. And in reality, in, in the movie reality, he actually is for a moment. And, uh, and Julie Christie is terrified because this is a man she thinks she's, she's in love with. And she thinks it's, you know, Joe. And, uh, and then, Beatty gets the new body, only he's forgotten who he was also. And uh, at the end, Julie Christie is bereft because she can't find uh, Beatty. And she sees the new Beatty. And this is that thing about she sees him differently. She can't, she sees somebody else, right? And 
she's nervous and she says, what happened to so-and-so? Oh yeah. Uh, you know, have you seen him? Have you seen him? And he says, no, I don't know. I'm just going out for a thing afterwards. And he just stops for a moment. He says to her, Hey, would you, uh, uh, I was going to meet a bunch of people, you know, we're having a big party and everything. And, uh, I'm a little late. Oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. What I mean is all of a sudden I don't feel like going to a big party. And, and, uh, I thought maybe if, I mean, you want to have a cup of coffee or something? I guess not. You're the quarterback. Yeah. Now, how'd you know that? Yes, I'd love to have a cup of coffee with you. And I find that so romantic. So, uh, fan it's pure fantasy, but it's so, to me, I think what moves me about it is thinking about trust, trust your instincts, trust what your heart says is true, even though it's like, it's going to seem crazy. It's like to be able to have that much kind of basic trust, I guess, that, you know, which few of us really have, but that things happen for a reason and this is it's all an optimizing experience this life we're going through and here it is and i'm going to take it i'm going to reject conventional wisdom conventional notions of reality and i'm going to go with it and to me i just think that's a sublime moment you should try to uh, check out the original because uh it's 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 very good and very, very does it have clever. a similar kind of moment it's like the same that? plot except it without the football uh, and, but um, it's probably one of the smartest remakes that I've ever seen in terms of actually using the material and presenting it in a in a completely different context and modernizing it, but not losing any of what was really good about the original. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. And who was who was it in was Robert Montgomery was uh, Joe and Claude Rains was the uh, Buck Henry character. Oh, great. Great. That's right. He's a he's a boxer, right? He's a boxer. No one, yes, a football and James Gleason is the uh, Jack Warden character, and he's great at it. Oh, boy. Yeah. How great is Jack Warden, right? I think, uh, yeah, he's, yeah. He, he, he was quite a career. Best, but he, I, I think the first time I ever saw him was in uh, 12 Angry Men. Sure. And, and then he did all those Twilight songs. So, yeah. uh, you know, he was, he was just somebody that was always around when I was younger. Was that another Sidney Lumet film, 12 Angry Men? Yep. yep. There were, there were moments there that I could have talked about too. Lee J. Cobb kind of getting his kind of revealing. Yeah, having that's that was amazing. amazing. Scene. Yeah. Uh, little film. I mean, a, an obscure film from a great director. Uh, this moment really moved me. It just came to me. I tried not to just, I said, okay, what moments are coming to me? And I'm just going to share them. Um, there's an obscure Kurosawa film called Dodeska Dent. Do you guys know that film? Sure. Yeah. The sound that the, uh, that the uh, subway makes right the, yeah josh have you ever seen that one I, a million years ago uh, yeah yeah back at, i think it was a million years um, ago i saw it like too. the tla in philadelphia but yeah yeah this mentally ill young boy is like goes around the neighborhood saying and you realize oh that's a sound that's he's making the sound of the whatever it is the above ground subway train moving through the neighborhood and uh i don't remember everything about the movie at all but I remember one relationship, and it just, again, uh, it 
it's it's always interesting what it reveals. What, why does that detail strike me? I don't know, but it gives me an opportunity to really open up and find out things that I'm, I'm I may not even be consciously aware I'm dealing with. But in this particular story, there was it kept cutting back to it was this neighborhood, this uh, uh, working class neighborhood, and uh, modern day I guess Tokyo, and uh, you see all these characters going through their ritual life, the ritualistic the ritual of their lives and uh and they all and but one pair in particular is a father and a son and the father and they live on the uh you know eating garbage and eating and going out and and begging and the son is this little urchin he's probably six maybe six years old maybe and uh the father is this very meek and uh kind of beautiful and artistic and ascetic type who probably Buddhist, I don't know. And, but he's, he's a dreamer and you keep cutting and he's always got a look in his eyes and he's dreaming. And whenever he talks, he, he enchants his son with stories about where they're going to go and what they're going to do. And he constructs in his imagination and in the imagination of the boy, this whole fantasy palace that they're going to move into. And in the course of the film, you keep cutting back, as I recall anyway, and, and Kurosawa would cut to uh, uh, animation when the father would describe, oh, the palace, with, I don't even remember what he says, but gates of this, and, you know, so on, and flowers on each side. And you see animated drawings going up and creating spiraling, these beautiful artistic forms. And the little boy was just enchanted. And the little boy's job, was always to go out and beg for food, to go to the restaurants and can I have what you don't need or whatever. And at one point he finds, thrown, I guess it must've been thrown away, some fish or something that are now, have spoiled to the point that they're fatally poisonous. And I guess the person who gave it to him or something, hey, don't, don't take this. This is, you can't eat this, you know. And he, for some reason, he winds up telling his father about this. And his father, who's a dreamer who thinks he can invent and reinvent reality as he chooses, tells the boy, no, no, it's fine. We can eat this. I know this because and he, you know, he spins one of his fantasies. And the boy knows it's not true. And the father keeps saying adamantly, you know, no, this is true. This is totally fine. We, we're going to eat this for our dinner because, and he gives this whole thing. And you see in this process, the boy loving his father so much. Again, it's a kind of strange variation on thinking of son of a woman, how Chris O'Donnell saw the value in this screwed up guy, Frank, saw the incredible value. And it was his love for that one that, you know, empowered him. In this case, it's kind of a darker version of it. The boy loves his father and, and is, is a support to his father. It kind of, in a, I guess in psychological terms, you might even say he enables his father. He feeds, he, he, he's a kind of, you know, uh, enabler in some way that there's a, there's a, and he, but he can't, it's not in his heart to counter his father, to say, no, dad, you're crazy. I love you when you spend these things, but, you know, I'm not going to eat this because it's poison. He can't do it. And you see him eating this poisoned food with his father as he continues, the father continues to say, see, it's fine, isn't it? 
And you see this little boy consuming this thing, which will kill him. And then you see them both, and they both have died. They both die. And it's that moment that I found extraordinary. I mean, it's a tragic moment, but I found it so uh, profound in terms of what can happen in a relationship where love is at its core and dependency on keeping a loving connection intact overrides even one's own common sense and survival. So that moment I, I, I really responded to. You can see why that was not one of Kurosawa's more popular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I remember it 20 or 30 years later, however long it was. So, uh, so that was one. Wow. Uh, yeah. 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 That's reduced you guys to dead silence, I see. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, don't know, I don't know how you follow Dead that. children, you know. Uh, I mean, 10 minutes ago, we were cracking up about the father breaking his neck coming down the... <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Well, let's see. Um, Another kind of dark one, not as dark, but uh, maybe in the moment that, uh, again, I don't remember the movie totally well since I didn't go back and look at it, but Memento. I guess I've already told you about my condition. Funny every time I see you. You don't remember where you've been or what you've just done. I can't make new memories. Everything just fades. What's the last thing you do remember? My wife. That's sweet. Dying. You really want to get this guy, don't you? My wife deserves vengeance. When you find this guy, what are you going to do? You're kill him. Somebody's got to pay, Lenny. Somebody always pays. Memento, great Christopher Nolan film. I think it's my favorite of those I've seen. I haven't seen all of his work. But absolutely my uh, favorite of his, yeah. Yeah, Memento is such a brilliant film. And uh, it was so much fun and interesting, you know, trying to kind of follow and put together what was going on and, and all that. And uh, going back in time, and uh, the relationship with, with uh, Guy Pierce, and I think it was Guy Pierce and Joey Pantoliano, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the moment that again just hit me when I was thinking about this broadcast. Okay, what are moments? That just and you know the moments that hit. You know, it's like I think we remember moments just based on you know I I think five years ago I might have chosen ten other moments. Five years from now I might choose, but these are the ones that came to me, and. Uh, the moment to me, which was stunning, was uh, when I learned late in the picture, after thinking Joey Pantoliano was the villain, mm -hmm. and this guy that we you know, have such sympathy for, Guy Pierce is such an amazing actor. And by the way, I love seeing him. I don't know if you guys saw Mayor of Easttown. Oh, yeah. He, I mean, he had a tiny little part. I, I'm told he just took it because the actor who was supposed to play it uh, had to cancel at the last minute as a favor to uh, Kate Winslet. He took it, but he's just so charismatic. It's just so yeah, amazing. Anyway, um, uh, the moment when we see that Guy Pierce wrote the wrong fact onto his back so that he would kill Joey Pantoliano ultimately. So this whole premise that we've been following the whole movie that he's got to kill this guy because he's after him. Yeah. And the only way this guy can, can know who he is is to construct the narrative that's written on his back. He did this deliberately to protect himself, his own guilt, his own 
evil, you know, so mm-hmm. that in a way was something terrible. And that was just such a shock. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've given away quite a few endings to that. But yeah, yeah. yeah, that's an amazing timing is, timing is everything. Yeah, right. Um, so that was an incredible storytelling moment. Just kind of, yeah. yeah. And again, it's, it's another thing where it kind of makes you question your own stories. It's like, oh, wait, this guy's appealing. He's, you know, he's the underdog. He's, he's a good guy. You know, it's like, and then it makes you, oh, wait a minute. How, how did I know that? <laughs> you know, I didn't. It's a bias of mine. It's a bias of the viewer. You know, it's like, uh, you know, be wary. Well, just, yeah, it's the last place you end, you expect that film to go. Yeah, yeah, so, right, yeah, right, yeah. Why is it that our favorite Nolan movie is it? As he began, although I did think Dunkirk. Well, he's he's got a, he's got a whole thing about time. I mean, he just keeps uh, going back to it over and over. Um, I, I mean, he hasn't to me to my mind he hasn't quite licked it yet, <laughs> but uh, he <laughs> certainly seems to be uh, preoccupied with it. Um, so we should we should plug the book again. Um, oh, thanks. Uh, called, uh, which yes, is out directing great television out now. Inside TV's Inside. Golden Age, and you can get it at Amazon. So, uh, yeah, I don't so talk you go about by Daniel or Dan anymore. Dan, I'm always by. Well, it used to be Danny. Usually, people who I knew from back with you and back in. Well, I was Danny then, but I, 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 I IMDb your Daniel. So I. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's because my early. And then it lists all your credits. It says as Dan. Yeah, at first, <laughs> the way it worked, I'll tell you, is when I became a director. Actually, I think I did this as an assistant director too. It's like I thought, you know, I was younger then. I thought, well, I got to be more distinguished. I got to be a Daniel. It was Danny, but I got to be a Daniel. And then along about, I don't know, 20 years ago, my kids would say, well, who is Daniel? Who calls you Daniel? Well, you're Dan. And I thought, you know, you're right. So by 20 years, for 20 years, I've heard credits said Dan, but IMDb, my early credits are Daniel. So we say Daniel. I just always remember you as this dark-haired, curly-haired <laughs> young guy. You Wait, know? I'm not? You don't think it's still? No. Okay. No, the, curl, <laughs> the curls have, have flattened. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, Dan or Daniel, <laughs> thank you for Danny. Thank you for sharing our um, stuff with us. And and this was actually a, a, an unusual um, topic for us, and and and, and rightly so. Uh, and yeah, that was great. A, a, a nice um, a nice breather from the usual people coming on and saying, "Boy, you know, wasn't that uh, Lawrence of Arabia a great picture?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I think yeah it's uh it's fun it's fun for me too i really appreciated uh uh you know being able that your guys responsiveness to to this spin on it because uh, i was discovering it too and it's uh it puts into focus to me a lot of, about why i respond to movies why why i think oh i love that movie it's often because of moments yeah. you know yeah, i think that's true of all of them yeah yeah uh, well, thank you. And, thank you, and sir. Daniel, uh, the book the book is out now. You can get it. Uh, can you get it at bookstores too, or is it? Um... Uh, bookstore is September seventh. Uh, Amazon now. You can order it. So terrific. Great. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks okay, so much. Thanks. All right. See you later. Bye, Dan. Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson. 
of the movies of me. Stay safe out there, folks. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.